Welcome to the Political Risk Podcast, an independent monthly podcast focused on geopolitical risk to serve decision makers working in specialty insurance markets, reinsurance and beyond. This third episode focuses on the relationship between climate change and malicious risks. I'm your host, David Bennion, and I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by Charlie Hanbury, Chief Executive of Samfire Risk. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. So Charlie started working in the market at Aon as a Latin America private client broker, followed by Hiscox as a special risks underwriter and later leading a crisis management team. Samfire Risk was formed in 2021 with Charlie as CEO. It's an independent MGA, a London market startup, and a cover holder at Lloyd's. Sanfire's business is focused on insuring people and companies against hostile and malicious risks. And I very much like this off your own website, bad people doing bad things. So a few months ago, Sanfire published a report called Climate Change and Involving Malicious Risks. The report describes climate change as the underlying driver of change for three key themes for malicious risk, strategic competition, terrorism, and the rise of technology. It's probably best if we don't silo those things into separate silos, but strategic competition seems to be the obvious one to talk about first. So let's focus on that. And we're talking about power projection, resource competition, hybrid warfare, those kind of things, right? How do you expect climate change to influence or intensify these risks of competition, everything short of war itself? Thank you for the introduction, David, and it's, it's great to be here. I mean, obviously, this is, this is a huge systemic topic, climate change. And the report we put out earlier this year, as you alluded to, does expressly state that the kind of nexus between climate change and the geopolitical tension or pure political violence is underexplored. So I don't want to be kind of too politician-y here, but I think I do want to caveat that we're as cognizant as anyone that strong opinion here could be premature. But against that, you know, I think everyone would be in agreement that this great systemic issue of our time, economically, socially, politically, is absolutely going to drive or push every nation, every government, every institution in a direction of potential discomfort and potentially, therefore, towards some form of conflict. Now, what are some signposts around that? Well, we know, for instance, that the International Forum of Terrorism Reinsurance Pools is already looking in detail at how climate change may exacerbate terrorism risk, by way of example. But specifically to your question, you know, how do we expect climate change to influence or intensify strategic competition short of war itself? I think perhaps a starting point is specifically populism. And we've seen how populist leaders can cause global tension to be amplified. And I think just in the last week or so, and I admit this is an extremely small example but perhaps a seed of where we're going, how green policy can rub up against voter intentions. We saw it in the Uxbridge by-election where the ultra-low emission zone or ULES was seemingly a big driver of voting intention. So that kind of ability to impact people's everyday ability to lead the life they want is likely to be a theme jumped on by vote-thirsty politicians. And of course, at a rather more notable scale, the US Inflation Reduction Act pledges over 370 billion over a decade to tackling climate change. And that's in a massively polarized political environment around government spending and influence over people's lives. So I think that kind of race to net zero in this country and beyond will present huge challenges, forcing social change on people and incentivizing activism if that pace of change drops off. 
because obviously there's two sides to this equation in terms of a growing movement of people wanting to see quicker action against climate change. Against that backdrop, you've got already stretched government balance sheets you know, to maintain social contracts around healthcare, welfare, aging populations. So I think this points to an extremely volatile environment going forwards into which populist policies and leaders could thrive. And against perhaps a more internation backdrop, you know, you've kind of got that perception of fairness. Why are developing nations necessarily having to pay for the pollutants of the developed world of the past? Or why in the West do people look East and perhaps see greater polluting nations than themselves, but with a need to sacrifice in, in the name of climate change on a kind of global basis? So I think all of these intertwined topics from the, the low level of, of voters not wanting to have their lives interfered with through to activists who want to see a greater pace of change, pushing populism up the agenda. And when you see populist leaders in place, you see potentially more global tensions, strategic powers going at each other a little more aggressively. So I think populism could be a real side product of climate change and how that starts to drive potentially political violence risk, but certainly interstate risk. Sure. There's certainly a lot of resentment going around on both ends of that. Clearly, immigration's a hobby horse for populist politicians in the West. And you look at resentment of that, but there's also resentment the other way around, isn't there? Because as you said, if let's say countries that are very exposed to climate change in sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East, if those people are becoming migrants and the Western nations where they're potentially moving to are also those that have been the biggest pollutants. There's going to be a lot of resentment of those populations too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, immigration clearly already is a, is a big driver of resentment and, and potentially recent riots in France have been linked to immigration policy in that country. So whether climate change driving the direct impact of immigration, i.e. people moving from locations or territories or environments which have become less habitable due to a changing climate, whether that be to the types of extreme heat we've seen in recent times in North Africa, Southern Europe, or flooding. The study describes the relationship between climate change, rising temperatures, wildfire, and political violence and terrorism, which I think is an interesting combination. Charlie, could you just explain that, please? Well, I think we see kind of three main issues arising, you know, climate change is sort of indirect contributor to existing terrorism, which we can talk about. And then as an ideological driver for new forms of terrorism, but absolutely providing opportunities for terrorism exploitation. So can things like wildfires be seen as a, as a future modus operandi of the, of the terrorists of the future? It's a high impact, low sophistication type of attack to carry out. And if you're seeing parts of the world, California, parts of Australia, kind of high value locations being targeted with this, this type of threat, you know, that's potentially a significant risk to be having on the, the radar of political violence underwriters. A lot of the focus when it comes to these topics is on governments, it's nation statecraft, and the forces at play can feel so powerful that I think you could forgive some private sector organisations for feeling relatively powerless, and therefore they may well be quite passive in their own stance from a risk management perspective and insurance buying as part of that. Is that a mistake? And what do you think organizations should be doing to mitigate these risks? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, mean, I think, I suppose from a, a personal view, looking back in history, you know, 
capitalist model has tended to be highly adaptable to managing itself around the challenges of the time. And I'm sure a lot of people would think the same as to how we adapt to climate change and the risks that it brings. And of course, there'll be huge opportunities from the capitalism model around that. And of course, against all of that, there's always been risks that are too large to ensure. I think you only have to look at the, the advent of reinsurance terrorism pools to see how governments have helped step in to provide that kind of ultimate backstop. But my general view is that, you know, the insurance market has been pretty good at adapting and evolving its products to protect clients, to allow them to go about their business of achieving their ambitions of operating in the commercial environment they wish to operate in. And I'm pretty positive that that'll be the case going forwards. And part of my optimism is based on the fact that I set up a business or help set up a business at least that focuses on providing solutions to these types of risks of the future. I wouldn't have done that if I didn't believe that there was a way of doing it. The protection gap is a phrase that gets mentioned often and certainly for climate related risks on the natural catastrophe side of things. I'm interested how you think from a protection gap perspective, the evolving insurance products match up to the emerging risks. Here at Samfire, what really our core mission is, is looking at the full spectrum of malicious and hostile risk. And what does that mean from an insurance product perspective? And what does it mean ultimately to how a client wishes to transfer that risk? And I think one of my general frustrations specific to the crisis management, political violence, however you want to put it, market, has been how siloed it is. If you're concerned about, and I'll use a very specific example, your employees operating overseas, that may be concerns around your duty of care to them, to their health and well-being. It may be to their exposure to security risk. You come to the insurance market to try and transfer that risk, or at least look for solutions to help you manage that risk. And you're presented with very siloed kind of personal accident type products to, to manage, you know, the risk of injury or death or anything like that. And then you kind of look at things like kidnapper ransom, active shooter type products to manage your employees exposure to security risk, but they're very siloed and they, they typically don't interact with each other particularly well. So one of our core beliefs is that these products should be more integrated. They should be less siloed. And very often, of course, these products also come with expert crisis response or expert help in the event of a loss behind them. So again, rather than providing clients with the complexity potentially of who to call in what scenario, make it more simple, give them a single point of help. And that I think speaks to your question, Dave, which is as these risks evolve, you know, the risk of climate change on the security risk environment isn't going to be siloed. It's our belief that increasingly the insurance market should offer these products on an integrated basis to match up to the risks that clients are looking at, you know, they're not looking at them from a silo perspective at all. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I had recently with an insurance carrier talking about the example of the kind of tit-for-tat attacks we see between the Iranians and the Israelis. So from one week to the next, if, for example, there's an Israeli cyber attack on an Iranian target to do with nuclear ambitions, for example, the Iranians may well respond with a hijacking event on a commercial vessel going through the Strait of Hormuz or a completely different type of attack. And the silos and product lines of the insurance market, well, the, the Iranians don't give a hoot about that. They don't care. A siloed approach can be really quite detrimental. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll give, I'll give you an example we come up constantly with, not necessarily related to 
risk emerging from climate change or anything like that. But, you know, US educational establishments and houses of worship, you know, they typically have quite significant overseas activity, but they also have a domestic exposure to their people through, you know, the risk of, a, of an active shooter scenario. And, and these clients are often baffled as to why they have to go to two different providers to manage their duty of care to their employees, whether it's domestically or internationally, through like a kidnap for ransom policy or an active shooter policy. Why does the insurance market offer those on a siloed basis with different types of support behind them rather than on an integrated basis? Because at the end of the day, it's a client that just wants to put in place the best form of protection for their people. So I think that's a, a very specific example that we come up a lot with in terms of how clients look at risk on a kind of holistic basis, but the insurance market addresses it on a silo basis. Sorry to interrupt the conversation for just a moment, but this is a reminder that you could be advertising in this very spot and for a fraction of the cost of other media. If you're listening because you're interested in geopolitical risk and in specialty insurance markets, then it's a fair assumption that decision makers at some of your target clients will be listening too. Podcasts are a great way to reach people, direct to the ear of a prospective customer. Email me at david.benyon at gmail.com. My details are on the Political Risk Podcast site. I'll make it as simple as I can for you to precision guide your message to your target audience. Thanks a lot, and back to the conversation. The report touches on the role of technology in various guises. Obviously, through cyber, we're all aware that technology as a tool can be turned towards malicious ends. But when we're thinking about climate change, the emphasis is usually a lot more positive, whether that's, you know, electric vehicles or solar panels, whatever the particular application of it. What would you say are some of the risks, the negative things we're thinking about relating to emerging tech and how that relates to climate change? It's a transition to a carbon-free world. We'll see undoubtedly huge changes in how technology impacts on, on jobs and, and that link into further society. But I think perhaps more interestingly, and I was reading recently about this potential change from petrostates to electrostates. So as, as we transition away from oil, specifically to vehicles, more to electric solutions, what does that mean for those traditional oil nations, those often quite autocratic states and nations, which have for the last 100 years or so built their wealth and influence on oil? as we transition away to those countries that are actually a better position with things like lithium for being an electrostate rather than a petrostate. What impact will that have on, on geopolitics as that technological change comes about? And China's done a lot through, obviously, its economic interests in sub-Saharan Africa to ensure its own supply chain for lithium, for example. In old-school communist nomenclature, it used to just be autarky, but whatever we're calling it, self-sufficiency in, in these kind of key rare earth commodities. I saw the EU created a body several months ago that was aimed at ensuring the same kind of strategic self-sufficiency. I don't know whether the West is as ahead of the game in thinking about securing its logistics for these commodities in the same way. I suppose potentially you've got, in inverted commas, more kind of friendly states to the West, such as Australia. Chile, I believe, has good resources in this area. Cornwall in the UK, I'm not sure that's going to be a, a major player. But technology just disrupts, whether it's AI, whether, it, whether it's climate change driven. And I think that's a sort of a risk that all societies, all governments have to manage on an ongoing basis. So it forms a smaller part of our, of our risk register in the report than some of the other factors. The report also warns that climate change will increasingly drive terrorism. 
And I know we talked about silos. So when I say terrorism, I also mean political violence and, and all these risks. But some of those effects seem to be more second order than others. So threats might be exacerbated or, or new ones might form. What do you expect to be some of the leading underlying factors related to climate? Terrorism is often driven almost always by some form of radicalization within people. So taking climate change as a sort of contributor to existing terrorism risk, you know, motivates such as food scarcity, extreme weather events we talked about, large scale migration we touched on, and the kind of financial and economic loss that, that may fall on populations due to some of those factors. These all can, I think, undoubtedly be seen as drivers of potential radicalization particularly depending on where they occur in the world. I think climate change as a kind of ideological driver for new forms of terrorism is interesting. You know, what's the kind of escalation from blocking the M25 to something more material in the coming years? You know, what, what, what's that evolution of risk look like? And I do think that's a fair question to consider. And absolutely, migration and population movement around the world being a driver of, of existing terrorism, but, but also forms of terrorism of the future. And thirdly, we did talk about this already, you know, climate change driving opportunities for terrorism exploitation through the direct impacts of a changing climate. So this could be going back to exploiting government weakness in the face of populism, as I talked about at the beginning, with perception that government policies leaving people under their care sort of high and dry economically. Or it could be as simple as, as we talked about, you know, exploiting the risk of things like wildfires due to hotter summers, low sophistication to carry out maximum impact. And then I think the sort of final point I make there is activism, you know, coming back to my point about the escalation from blocking the M25 to something more material and significant in the name of activism. Let's talk about MGAs and about Samfire risk particularly. So the MGA model has seen a heck of a lot of market activity in recent years and some mixed fortunes. So many MGAs have been launched and they've been heralded as market entry vehicles for outside capital. The MGA model is also associated with product innovation, technology, across personal and commercial lines of primary insurance, with so many insurtechs launching as MGAs seen as a gateway to this market. However, as an MGA, Samfire's product list is very different it's specialty, you're focused on terrorism, political violence, crisis response, active assailants, kidnap and ransom in its various forms, as well as accident and travel and blended coverage that combines those elements together. So I've obviously been reading your website. But there's a significant advisory aspect to what Samfire does as well, which is very typical for these lines of business, but not necessarily typical for an MGA. So I'm interested in what you think, Charlie, that what it is about the MGA model that is well suited to underwriting these specialty risks? I suppose I should caveat this by saying I set up an MGA in this space. So um, clearly that's indicative of my view. <laughs> they are indeed well suited. But I suppose to give you some rationale, in my 19 years or so, I've been involved in these kind of insurances or the, you know, the sort of crisis management space of the market, both as a broker and then 14 years as an underwriter within a major Lloyd syndicate. I have seen at quite close quarters, you know, how MGAs can be well suited to specialty risks. I think obviously they need to be to a greater or lesser extent doing what the capacity that supports them can't do. And that's usually across a blend of the product they put to market and their efficiency and or diversity of distribution. And I suppose specific to Samfire, 
we see and, and you know we've, we've talked about this dave is this opportunity to be less siloed by how clients and brokers can access insurance protection in the malicious and hostile risk space so you know i don't repeat myself but if you know if you, if you have a client operating in a hostile or non-permissive environment and they're concerned about people's health security and safety why make them buy different policies with different providers depending on whether an employee has been injured or criminally targeted for example you know we don't believe that clients should have to look at the landscape of evolving a malicious and hostile risk, whether it's driven by the topics we've talked about today or not, and then look at the insurance market to transfer those risks to and just be met by a wall of singular products and end up having to build a kind of piecemeal protection program. So I suppose you'd have to indulge me in language, use the word that, you know, we look at it holistically, as, as I mentioned before. And I think MGAs have that ability to be nimble, to deploy different forms of capital, different forms of capacity, to innovate product normally in a bit more of a focused yeah. and rapid way. Well, you, you say being holistic and we've talked about breaking down silos and not, not thinking in silos. So what's the take up like, for example, of the blended coverage package that combines elements of those risks from kidnap and ransom, active assailant, as well as kind of accident and travel stuff compared to a product just taking on one of those covers? We've been in the market now for just under two years. And, you know, we, we've brought out a number of standard and then quite innovative products. And I think the absolute truth of the matter is, is coming to the insurance market with a totally new offering takes time to get traction. But we've earned the right to trade in this market space by bringing blended solutions, uh, by bringing innovative solutions, whether that's integrating personal accident and kidnap and ransom policies or active assailant and kidnap and ransom policies. Give you a couple of examples. That has also unlocked us opportunities to look at the kind of more standard siloed products because, you know, the insurance market, as we know, doesn't move particularly fast. But where we are seeing good pull for the product is actually from clients. So clients who are coming to their brokers, they've heard about our ability to offer integrated solutions. They like the look of it because it's easier to understand they've got no gaps in cover. It's easier to understand how they access help in the event of a claim because we provide them with a single responder. And they're actually asking their brokers to come and talk to us about these products. Thinking this way is going to take us time to get traction in the marketplace, but we're absolutely committed to it because we believe it's ultimately what the buying policyholder is looking for. And ultimately, of course, what clients want is what's going to drive our commercial success. So many of the MJs that have come and gone in recent years have been focused on property risks but property catastrophe business, and we've seen enormous losses on that. It's turned the reinsurance market in recent renewals. Looking at specialty lines, though, political violence, it's a very different market, but it's not exactly been devoid of losses either. So you know, we saw civil unrest in Latin America, in Chile a few years ago, and just in recent months in France. But I'm aware that a lot of that is sustained by property or risks policies, and especially looking at Chile when events like that have happened, that's driven the standalone market because it's excluded SRCC from those policies. You know, we're talking about some pretty healthy rises in PV pricing and demand. Can you talk a little bit about that market and, and whether this has also been a significant draw for underwriting capacity? I think you put the context exactly right. I mean, I wouldn't say there's been a specific draw for kind of fresh underwriting capacity from, from what we see perhaps to oversimplify, I'd say that specific to the political violence space, you know, I think a lot of insurers, capacity providers in the space are looking to correct pricing issues of the past and also to ensure, you know, what, what their margin is in, in a world of increasing treaty reinsurance costs off the back of the loss environment. But that said, whether it's for the reasons we're talking about today with 
these sort of big systemic issues which are going to be driving risk of the future, we do anticipate the pull of demand for cover will remain strong. So I think insurers will have a strong market for their products, but balancing that against kind of ever increasing degree of volatility from claims and ensuing reinsurance costs. But specific to MGAs and specific to ourselves, I think and I hope that we're well equipped because we have genuine expertise and understanding of the risks. We have access to threat intelligence data and advisory to help us inform our underwriting so that we can provide sustainable, profitable, long-term underwriting capability to our capacity providers. And perhaps therefore we represent a slightly better bet, particularly, you know, maybe if you just sat as a follow market in the political violence market for many years, you know, is your capital better deployed into an MGA with genuine expertise and, and differentiation? So I think we feel we're an attractive bet in that sense, in, in, a, in what's going to be a volatile market. And we feel we're an attractive bet as a point of distribution as well, because, you know, as I mentioned, we don't feel that demand is going to be dropping off for these types of insurance products. So I read that Samfire has entered into partnership with Jake Hockley at Whiteleaf Ventures with the aim of creating a cyber insurance product. Does this represent a whole new product line for you? And what can you say about the product you're aiming to build at this stage? Yeah, so you're absolutely right, Jake's a partner of the business, long-term successful cybersecurity expert. You can't really talk about malicious and hostile risk as we do, and that's how we like to kind of term the market that we're in or the, the risk environment that we look at and not in some way, shape or form be addressing cyber risk within that. You know, it runs through everything nowadays, of course. Again, back to the point of looking at things on a kind of siloed basis, cyber threat intertwines itself into practically everything that anyone looks at. So we feel it's very important that we have a good understanding of the risk environment and Jake helps us with that. Our existing products do touch cyber risk. We provide, and in some of our more bespoke kind of crisis response products, we provide crisis response to certain cyber scenarios. So I think evolving from that, we're not looking to become a standalone cyber insurer or anything like that in case our capacity providers are listening. But we are looking to become more sophisticated as to how we offer mitigating advice around cyber risk and also build in better potentially mitigating components to our products, which address in some way, shape or form cyber risk. So it's early days, but Jake's here to help us on that kind of mission. And we like to feel that at a point in the fairly near future, we will have an ability to offer sensible risk mitigation advice around cyber and a little bit more of an evolved, mature product approach in that space as well. I've always thought it, that the cyber business has much in common with K&R, but often when you hear it discussed, it's seen from a liability perspective or other classes of business, but you're somebody who comes from a K&R background. Yeah, absolutely. So many cyber products now are about when the problem hits, who do you call? And giving an answer to that question. I often describe the types of insurances that I've always been involved in is the connective tissue between somebody that's got a problem and that somebody can help in that moment of need. It's not necessarily always about balance sheet protection. For K&R, obviously, you know, if, if you have a, a loved one or an employee kidnapped, the policy gives you access immediately, ground up to expertise that can come and help you manage through that highly complex scenario. And cyber is built on that same model to a greater or lesser degree. So it, it's very much within our kind of wheelhouse of understanding from that perspective. But of course, you know, we're cognizant of the complexity in the market space as well.
I hope you found the conversation with Charlie as thought-provoking as I did. A major takeaway for me was the mistake of thinking in silos, whether about the underlying risks or about the insurance products that are available in the specialty markets to transfer them. This conversation seems timely given current events in the Sahel, with a recent coup in Niger which might yet lead to war, as West African countries struggle to respond, as well as France, Russia, the US and the West all getting involved, and Western organisations rushing to evacuate their expat employees in anticipation of trouble. Climate is such an existential risk, all-encompassing perhaps more than any other issue. We're told daily about record temperatures, about the increased severity of storms, greater frequency of extreme weather, like wildfires, droughts or floods, and the near certainty that humans are the primary cause behind all of this. It's everything, everywhere, all at once. But like any data or modelling issue, the more you have, the easier it becomes to draw conclusions. But when you zoom right in, it's much harder to speak with confidence. Climate change attribution is next to impossible when you zoom into a specific event or incident that suddenly flares up somewhere around the globe. But even if an initial flashpoint event is a political risk on face value and can't be proven to be linked to climate change, we can see second order effects that do become intertwined with longer term climate change issues. For instance, we might be seeing this following the outbreak of civil war in Sudan earlier this year, where NGOs are already reporting food shortages. Across the continent, Africa faces a looming food crisis caused by the halted supply of grain from Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe, to the Black Sea, but potentially exacerbated by climate change effects too. It isn't a big leap of the mind to go from a food crisis to an economic crisis to a political risk crisis for many affected African countries. We know that the risks are not siloed, they're interconnected. Malicious actors certainly don't think in terms of insurance products. So I'd agree with Charlie that clients as well as insurance companies should be working to better integrate and blend products to provide more joined up solutions and reduce protection gaps wherever they may lie. There's an irony, or at least a philosophical point here, that if an issue like climate change is the fault of human intervention, then it'd be naive for the insurance industry, or anyone, to silo its own thinking about the effects of climate change to just be about property or natural catastrophe lines of business. Instead, this is a man-made risk that will return to hit human endeavour across specialty lines of business, such as political risk, terrorism and political violence. In our next episode, the focus will be on triggers for political violence and SRCC in Latin America. So please stay tuned, follow, like and subscribe. You've been listening to the Political Risk Podcast, hosted by me, David Benyon. My guest was Charlie Hanbury, CEO of Samfire Risk. Production by Peter McGill and music by Lawrence Durkin. <laughs>